I'm Cheryl Kennedy from the Library of Congress. The National Book Festival is in its seventh year, and it has attracted tens of thousands of book lovers of all ages to the nation's capital to celebrate reading and lifelong literacy. This free event is sponsored and organized by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. This year, the festival will take place on Saturday, September 29th, on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Festival goers will meet and interact with 70 best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. There will be activities for the entire family. If you're unable to attend in person, we invite you to experience the festival online. Our podcast interview series with well-known authors, along with webcasts from the festival, will be available through the National Book Festival's website at loc.gov slash bookfest. We now have the pleasure of talking with New York Times bestselling author of contemporary fantasy novels for teens and children, Holly Black. She will appear in the Teens and Children Pavilion at the festival on September 29th. Ms. Black's popular teen urban fantasies have all found international success and been translated into numerous languages. Holly Black's latest work, Ironside, A Modern Fairy's Tale, is the follow-up to her book, Ty, where we follow Kay's magical quest between the human world and fairy world, where nothing is as it seems. Welcome, Holly. Can you discuss how you've drawn from the world in which you grew up the suburbs of New Jersey, into the magical worlds of Ty and Ironside? Uh, well, when I was first uh, writing Ty, um, I I was thinking about the fact that um, when I was a kid, it seemed to me that there were a lot of books where there were people who were um, very poor, and there were people who were very rich, and there were people who were middle class, but middle class in those books seemed rich. And so I wanted to write about the people I knew, um, you know, kids who uh, lived in trailers and who, you know, um, walked everywhere and who had beater cars and who, um, you know, were a little bit different than the books that I had read when I was growing up. Um, and also the Jersey Shore, which is a really strange place in that once it was really uh, beautiful and uh, presidents would come and, uh, you know, go go to the beach for the holidays, and, you know, they still have sort of the artifacts of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the beaches are called, like, Seven Presidents Beach, and there's, uh, in Asbury Park, all these magnificent old buildings, but now they're completely abandoned. And I thought that, that that setting would be, uh, it, it's almost a sort of haunted setting in itself. It would be really interesting sort of juxtaposed against um, this magical world. A strong theme in Ironside is the feeling of not belonging. Kay feels trapped between the human world and the fairy world. Did you have similar feelings growing up in New Jersey? Well, I think um, I think one of the things that that the fantasy can do and um, is is be meta is is have a metaphorical read, and I think that everybody at one time or another feels like they don't belong. I mean, I think that. The K, um, the, the interesting thing about K is that as a changeling, she really doesn't belong. 
you know, we, we as humans may sometimes feel like our friends don't understand us or like we're not like our family. Mm-hmm. Okay, literally, it's not human. And um, I think that I was, I was sort of thinking along those lines. I thought, you know, this would, um, that, that it's an interesting stand-in for that feeling. But I, I don't know that I felt that any more than anyone else does. Let me ask you um, about, I guess, the popularity of fantasy books. Do you think, um, why do you think the fantasy books and characters such as Harry Potter are so appealing to young readers today? Well, as someone who loves fantasy, um, I, I don't know that, in some ways, you know, I have, I have thoughts and opinions on this, and in other ways I think that I'm like, well, of course people love fantasy. Fantasy is great. Um, but I think that, um, like I was saying, I think that, that fantasy often uh, is, is thought of as an escape, but in fact, the, the great thing about fantasy is it gets at a lot of things from different and interesting and new directions. Um, you know, Harry Potter is able to talk about uh, issues of um, discrimination and um, issues of good and evil in ways that are different than realistic fiction is going to be able to. Um, and I think that, that people have really, you know, enjoyed that. I think people, but I also think that people enjoy the idea that the world could be bigger and stranger and more interesting. Um, I think people love the idea that somewhere in the world there could be a school of witchcraft and wizardry and some kids are getting letters. And I think, like, I think people think that, um, it's exciting to believe that maybe if we look sort of sideways uh, into a forest, maybe we'll see something out of the corner of our eye. I think that that feeling of largeness mm-hmm. and possibility is very enticing. Well, obviously, you have a vivid imagination. I would <laughs> think that writing fantasy requires having that kind of imagination. What do you draw from? Um, I think the books that, that I read when I was a kid, um, I grew up, reading uh, Brad Fred and Alan Lee's Fairies, which uh, is this beautiful illustrated book that my mom brought home, and it's, it's quite frightening. I mean, it was my first experience realizing that fairies weren't, you know, little girls with wings, um, but there were this whole, there were this whole range of creatures and this whole range of folklore, and they were sort of my access point into reading um, just a ton of fairy folklore, uh, and I find it also interesting. They're almost like ghost stories, um, people would go out into, you know, the field of, of different countries and ask people for, you know, oh, have you had any fair experiences? And people would often be like, well, I haven't, but that guy has, and, and refer them. And then they would tell these really, really fascinating stories. Like this guy who, um, he he cut off the corner of his house because he had built it on a ferry path, and it would, and the rattling and the banging every night, um, of the fairies trooping by was so loud that he couldn't sleep because they hated that he built a corner. And so there's this really great picture of, of a house with a corner cut off. And, and the story ends where he says that afterward, although the rattling and the banging stopped, some nights he would still hear this whoosh of wind go around that corner. And I love those stories. And I think that they had um, just a, a huge influence on, on um, 
not just what I put in the stories, but but trying to evoke that mood, that sort of um, haunting, numinous, uh, magical stuff mood. I've read that you grew up in an old Victorian mansion filled with books and oddities. Um, Not quite a mansion. (laughs) (laughs) How did your surroundings uh, influence your writing? Um, I got the house. It was this, it was a big house. It was not a mansion. It was a it was a sort of dilapidated um, mm-hmm. old Victorian house. It was over a hundred years old. My parents had inherited it from my great grandmother, and it was filled with things when we got there, and it was filled with even more things by the time I was a teenager. It was just completely filled with things and um and books and uh and I think that in that that house and that that the sort of landscape of uh, of uh, this cluttered old weird house has shown up uh, in a couple of places. Probably most most uh, most of all in um, the Spiderwick articles that I wrote with um, that I worked on with Tony Dudalizzi. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that particular landscape has, has sort of shown up again. The idea of the the old house um, filled with weird secret things. Because my house may not have been filled with secret things, but there were certainly a lot of weird things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, do you like that kind of thing? I mean, does your house look like that now? Uh, It's it's less dilapidated. I moved moved to Massachusetts, and uh, I have a little cuter house here. And uh, I try not to fill it with quite as many things. Um, I'm not that good at it, but... uh, (laughs) Fewer things. I do. I do have a secret door, though. Really? Myself. Oh wow, that sounds interesting. I can, you know, freak you... out new. You <laughs> freak out new people. If I was one freaked out. Well, we certainly um, are looking forward, and I'm sure your fans are looking forward to hearing you speak on September 29th. Um, and hearing more about your new book, Ironside. Can you read an excerpt? from that book for us? Yes. This is from Chapter 1 of Ironside. Human girls cry when they're sad and laugh when they're happy. They have a single, fixed shape rather than shifting with their whims like wind-blown smoke. They have their very own parents, whom they love. They don't go around stealing other girls' mothers. At least that's what Kay thought human girls were like. She wouldn't really know. After all, she wasn't human. Fingering the hole on the left side of her fishnets, Kate poked at the green skin underneath as she considered herself in the mirror. Your rat wants to come, Liddy Lou said. Kate turned toward the lidded fish tank, where the doll-sized fairy had her thin, pale fingers pressed against the outside of the glass. Inside, Kay's brown rat, Armageddon, sniffed the air. Isaac was curled in a white ball in the far corner. He likes coronations. Can you really understand what he's saying, Kay asked, pulling an olive skirt over her head and wriggling it onto her hips. He's just a rat, Ludy said, turning, turning toward Kay. One of her moth wings dusted the side of the cage with pale powder. Anyone can talk a rat. All right. Can you to it. offer any advice to young writers? I think the best advice uh, that I have about writing is to read everything. It sounds obvious, but uh, it's true. And read outside the genre that you love and also inside the genre that you love. Read, 
mysteries, read science fiction, read fantasy, read realistic fiction, read biographies, read memoirs, read everything. Uh, because each different thing has tricks. And because you're storing up all of that knowledge and all of that sort of the, the um, just the seeing of phrases and the, the knowing how people are uh, doing different things in books. Uh, and the other thing is it was really helpful for me to have a writing friend, somebody that I knew who also was very serious about writing, who could poke me and prod me and make sure I got my chapters done and read what I wrote and give me good feedback. And the best writing friends are people who really like the same kind of writing that you like. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the same... Um, Maybe not even the same genre, but they have the same appreciation for what you're doing as a writer, and they're going to understand it, and they're going to give you feedback that helps you be a better writer, and mm-hmm. you're going to hopefully give them feedback that makes them be a better writer, and just giving feedback is also helpful. It trains your mind to think critically about writing. Um, so those are two things that, I, that were really helpful for me. Now, you have another book coming out this fall uh, on September 18th, uh, the Nixie Song which is a part of the popular Spiderwick Chronicle series. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is a Nixie? <laughs> a Nixie is a, uh, a water fairy, a freshwater fairy. They live in ponds. Now, the, the setting for Nixie's song is different than the other Spiderwick novels. As a native Floridian, uh, why did you decide to move from New England to sunny Florida? Well, um, Florida is, is actually where Tony grew up, and so um, that was one of the one of the reasons. Um, but most of all, what we wanted to do um, with the second uh, the second cycle of the Spider Chronicles was do some unexpected things and make some unexpected choices. Um, you know, in the first cycle, our, we sort of our contention was that fairies could be anywhere; that they could be in your backyard. Um, and that, you know, anyone could go out and sort of look for fairy evidence and possibly find it. But saying that about New England, it it feels still in that, it still feels like, well, yes, you know, of course there might be fairies in New England. But um, Florida is different. It has a totally different uh, sort of landscape and the idea of, okay, no, we really mean anywhere. Um, Florida, you know, in, in a development where uh, Nick lives is just a, Life with fairies as, as, you know, a old, weird house in New England. What do you find so appealing about fairies? I, I mean, think that unlike other kinds of supernatural creatures, if you will, uh, they are, the, the variation of fairies is really interesting. And also, unlike, say, werewolves or vampires, fairies have never been human. They're this alien sort of group of creatures that live in our world, but we don't see them. And I like that they are, they're you know, deeply associated with nature. I like that they different, have a sort of a different sense of what's right and wrong than we do. They have very strict rules about borrowing. They have really strict rules about lying. Um, they are, and, and there are so many different kinds. I mean, there's ochres, goblins, nixies, pixies, sprites, Shagfuls, um, pukas, you know, I could go on and on and on. And all of them have different things that they do and things that they can do and different habits and habitats. How do you prepare for the creation of this 
new world that grows in your mind? Um, that's a good question, although I'm not entirely sure how to answer it. Um, I think, you know, it depends on the book. Um, you start with something. You start with some bit of something, like uh, sometimes a line. Like, Tithe, I started with a line that I had. Um, or you start with an idea of some tiny piece of it, and you just start developing it and pushing it and messing with it and thinking about it until it starts to come together. And then, for me, while I'm writing it, I'm still changing it and editing it. And um, and with Spiderwick, Tony and I kind of sit down and try and talk about what we're doing, what we're planning on doing, and then I'll go off and write and he'll go off and draw and we'll get together and give things back and forth, which is really different than both my other books and, and most people's process because both times authors and illustrators never really meet. What is it like to work with another author uh, on, on a book? Tell us about your collaboration. Well, um, like I said, because we have sort of an unusual thing, um, it's probably different than, uh, than other people's collaboration because what I'm doing is we're really just kind of hashing things through and trying to figure out what would make a good story, and then I'll go off and write, and then he'll give me a lot of feedback, and then I'll take his feedback and try and figure out how to make it work and uh, how to make it a better story. Uh, you know, our, our idea being trying to make this the best story it can be and also to just really tightly mesh the illustrations and the writing so that, for instance, if he wants to draw something, uh, often I will under I'll let that scene be underwritten so that the drawing speaks for the scene, um, and he will usually choose things to draw that I haven't um, I haven't uh, described a lot, which was not how I thought illustration worked, but in fact it's really interesting because then. Um, the the illustration and the writing are really in dialogue a lot more. Um, and also, uh, sometimes he'll send me a picture, and I'll write a scene from the picture. And then he'll, he'll uh, it, as in the case of uh, one thing in book four, and then he'll redraw the picture. Um, so I think in that way, it's, it's there's, I, I don't know how, how normal it is, but it, it's been a lot of fun. And we're talking about your uh, collaboration with illustrator, artist, Tony... Tony Didalizzi. Uh, Didalizzi. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, the Spiderwick Chronicles are now being adapted into a film to be released in February 2008. What can your fans expect from the movie version? Um, well, the movie version... Uh, a lot of people ask me how many books are in, or, uh, in the movie version, and it's all five books. Uh, obviously, not everything made it in, but I cherry-picked a lot of fun stuff, and I think people will really like it. If I were to say which book it was most like, I would say it's most like book two. And I think it's a lot of fun and uh, really pretty great. I'm really excited. Can you discuss your upcoming projects, such as the graphic novel series, The Good Neighbors, and The White Cat? Uh, well, The White Cat is still just, a, uh, just about three chapters that I'm constantly rewriting, so I don't have much to say about it, but uh, The Good Neighbors is a graphic novel series illustrated by Ted Nafee, 
uh, and it's coming out from the first book is coming out from Scholastic next year. Uh, it's also about fairies, but um, it's on the West Coast. Uh, there's no courts of fairies that are battling. It is um, it's a little different. Uh, it's a little bit more of a mystery, um, and there's going to be three graphic novels in total. Well, thank you very much for your time, uh, Holly. You. The National Book Festival is free and open to the public and will take place on the National Mall between 7th and 14th Streets Northwest from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on September 29th. For details and a complete list of participating authors, visit loc.gov bookfest. Thank you for listening.